Good morning and welcome to the Around the World 20 Minutes podcast for this week in a sweltering Milan where the temperature hovers just under 100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is very hot even for an Ohio boy raised as I was on the dog days of summer. Uh, But it's only supposed to last another three or four days. The cats and I are taking shelter and uh, come the Sunday, the temperature breaks probably for the year. So I'm dressed in my my kind of Pacific World War II theater outfit of shorts and a shirt barely on in case somebody comes to the door. But never fear, that doesn't stop us from moving forward with what we're doing. And we are now well and truly in to The Last Best Hope. And the series I'm doing is What Was I Thinking? Uh, And I'm going to take you through how a writer goes about writing a book. And last week we looked at the introduction and the grand hopes for The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. Again, please do pre-order now, all of you in our community, because we want to beat, and we're off to a great start. Thank you. But we want to beat the Amazon algorithm and get this out to the widest audience possible. This is a political book. It is evangelical. It is to do nothing less than change the basic nature of the Republican Party. If we can change the party, we can change America. And if we can change America, we change the world. And to do that, we want to unite the Jeffersonian and Jacksonian wings of the Republican Party around realism as the cement binding the party together now that Donald Trump has very usefully expelled the neoconservatives to where they rightly belong in the outer darkness, having perpetuated ruinous wars of choice in Iraq, Afghanistan, and boy, they're working on one in Ukraine at the moment. So to stop all that and have a positive image of America moving forward, realism is the answer. And I hope this book is the answer. So please pre-order and do it now. And better still, I hate this term, but influencer is the modern term. You folks in the community who are passionate about what we do and show up every week, and I love you for it. Please do spread the word far and, far and wide to anybody who would be interested to pre-order the book now so we can defeat the mighty algorithm of Amazon and get this out to the widest audience and have them do the commercial research and advertising for us. But I'll talk to you about the tours as we go on and what we're doing about the book practically. But now I want to talk to you ideationally as to how I went about thinking this. Okay, so assume that you agree with us in the introduction as we went through it, what I was thinking, that realism is the obvious natural glue to bind together the Jacksonian populist base of the Republican Party with the Jeffersonian plank of the party of which I am a member. I fall somewhere between the Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, so again, I'm, by my biography, perfectly placed to write this book as I'm sympathetic to both tribes. Okay, what would realism look like practically? Because only if we can bind together through the use organically of the American story and come up with precepts to guide our foreign policy can we show what a realist foreign policy actually look, look looks like? And then in the conclusion, we take it out for a spin, what we've done. If you indeed buy these precepts, how would you go about dealing with the world we find ourselves in today? But first things first, the precepts. In chapter one, the precept is alliances should only be entered into when they advance specific American interests. Again, alliances should only be entered into when they advance specific American interests. Um, I'll tell you a story to begin this. Uh, when I was over here in Europe at one point, I got to know one of a bevy of Italian foreign ministers, and we were arguing over some treaty, and he said to me something that makes perfect sense to a European and no sense at all to an Anglo-Saxon realist. It was a very amusing moment, and he said to me, 
John, you have these quibbles with the treaty. Why don't you just sign it and then ignore it? That's what we do in Italy and Europe and have been doing since the foundation of the EU. You're being, you're causing difficulties. Sign it and then ignore it. And I said, well, no, I'm an Anglo-Saxon, sir. I believe in the rule of law. We should only sign things that we commit ourselves to doing. We should speak softly and carry a big stick, as Theodore Roosevelt would put it. I'm not going to sign something and then ignore it. Better not to sign something at all. There is always pressure when one reads the mainstream media, witless as it is, that the United States or some group is holding up the signing of a treaty as though the treaty in and of itself is inherently good. That signing a piece of paper, a very Wilsonian left-wing view, is inherently good. Sign the paper and everything will be well. Rather than saying, does this piece of paper, does this alliance, does this agreement suit the specific interests of the United States or not? If it does, we should sign it. If it does not, we should not, and not feel bad that the Guardian is unhappy that we haven't signed the 400th Treaty binding ourselves as the American Gulliver, tying ourselves down with the European Lilliputians, that they somehow can bind our strength, that they can somehow keep us from doing what suits the American people, which is, after all, what the American president swears an oath to do in the inauguration, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and its people. That's what matters. Not signing an agreement a bunch of unelected technocrats might like. And this has been a bit, the great news about looking for realism in the American story is it's full of realism. Almost every great moment, as we're going to see, is replete with American realism. And our first moment is the Jay Treaty of 1794 and the brilliant partnership, Lenin and McCartney of their day, of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton. And I just want to make five very basic points. The first point is that it, the next time someone tells you from the safety of a French cafe, that republics don't have a very good record of formulating and keeping to a specific American foreign policy. You might obviously mention containment, where America kept to a specific doctrine for combating the Soviets for 50 years. But even more impressively, in the early republic, the path that George Washington put us on, entirely a realist path devised by Washington and his McCartney, Alexander Hamilton, probably the most brilliant man not to be president, the brilliant path they put us on lasted as an American foreign policy for 120 years and basically saw us, uh, led to us emerging as a great power. There have only been three innovations, really, in American geostrategic thinking. I hope till my Roosevelt rule, which, as you know, I was writing about in The Messenger, I hope we're number four. But up to now, there have only been three specific intellectual geostrategic breakthroughs in the whole of the American historical experience. One, what Washington and Hamilton set up. Two, what John Quincy Adams sets up. And then three, what Franklin Roosevelt sets up and we're championing. These three basic revolutions in American strategic thinking are all she wrote. And interestingly enough, two of them take place very early in the American story of our republic, and very few people know about either. So this already got me to thinking I really should begin by writing about this because it is realist. It lasted for 120 years. It was wildly successful, and nobody knows about it. For a writer, this is check, 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 check. This is where you begin. So let's begin with it. The cynics are wrong. The idea republics can't formulate and keep to a specific foreign policy is belied by what Washington did in the 1794 Jay Treaty and then in his farewell address 
which set America onto a foreign policy course which lasted for nothing less than 120 years, really, until World War I, and led to the United States emerging as a great power. Um, you really, I think the second point you have to say is that you have to look at this Lennon-McCartney relationship of Washington and Hamilton, which, if anything, I think is retrograde, meaning that it's a look back, that Washington, in many ways, if you're going to understand him historically, is America's last king. And Hamilton is America's last prime minister, that they were so successful that you didn't need Washington and Hamilton again. No longer was the United States going to be at the mercy of whether great men led it or not, but rather the rule of law, the Constitution, the state constitutions that were set in place by Washington and Hamilton. And remember, Hamilton was the primary writer of the Federalist Papers, the greatest how-to guide in history as to how to run a republic. Hamilton was the primary author of this and the most passionate defender of the Constitution that used Washington's immense prestige to, push, put, to press forward. But the reason this all worked is that Washington was the last king. He was the last person, for instance, elected president in his first run for office unanimously. It's extraordinary. All the electors voted for Washington. Uh, John Adams became vice president, but Washington unanimously is, is by acclamation made president for the first time, the father of our country. So he's the last king, and his job is to see to it that America is never at the mercy of a king again. This paradoxical calling is why Washington is great. And Hamilton emerged as his prime minister. Hamilton nominally was secretary of the treasury, which is an important enough position, but in these early days of the country, nobody stayed in their lane, and so Hamilton became the leading voice of Washington's cabinet, be the issue money, be the issue foreign affairs, macroeconomics, social policy, you find Hamilton running everything. He was chairman of everything, having served as Washington's able right-hand man in his late 20s, extraordinarily, in essence, while Washington was leading the Continental Army, Hamilton was running the Continental Army for him, as anybody who knows of the great musical Hamilton. Based on the great, by the way, I commend it to you, Ron Chernow's book on Hamilton is fantastic. If anything, it's even better than his biography of Washington. The Hamilton book upon which the musical is based makes macroeconomics and what Hamilton did sound um, explicable, when really Hamilton is the genius among geniuses. You have Jefferson, you have Adams, you have Franklin, you have genuine geniuses in any environment. And of them all, if I had to pick one, give me the headstrong, difficult Hamilton who is the genius among geniuses who embeds things. So to understand the modern republic, you have to look at Washington paradoxically as the last king, meaning we never need a king again, and Hamilton as his prime minister. Across the board, whatever the issue, including in foreign affairs. And this leads us to the most contentious and important moment of Washington's two terms of office, which were a triumph. Certainly, and I agree with the historical listing, if you're going to list a big three of great presidents, it's got to be in the 18th century Washington, in the 19th century Lincoln, and in the 20th century Franklin Roosevelt. They are the big three. And Washington well and truly deserves his place there for embedding the rule of law in a way almost no other country's done. Our, revo our revolutionaries were not great revolutionaries. In fact, they limped to victory only by the miracle of Yorktown. They themselves couldn't believe they'd actually won. They may not have been fantastic revolutionaries, but unlike in the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or the Chinese Revolution, 
our revolutionaries were able administrators who knew what they wanted to do with power when they got it and set in motion a republic that has lasted these almost 250 years. People talk about America as a young country. It's actually a very old country with its rules having been set in place for 250 years without much change. And that record really comes down to un that almost unimpeachable historical record comes down to Washington and Hamilton. But the Jay Treaty in 1794 was where the rubber hit the road. It was the most divisive issue to ever come up across Washington's plate. And in fact, by his decisions over the Jay Treaty, we have the beginning of the party system that one set of people called the Federalists support of the pro-British foreign policy of Hamilton and Washington. And the other soon to coalesce around the term Jeffersonian, or even more confusingly, the Democratic Republicans, so we'll just call them the Jeffersonians because it makes it more clear who we're talking about, they were pro-French. So the basic first party division in the United States comes out of the Jay Treaty. If you're for the Jay Treaty, you're pro-English and you're Federalist and you're with Washington and Hamilton. If you're against the Jay Treaty, you're pro-French, you're with Jefferson, Madison, and the state's writers. And that's really the beginning. The Jay Treaty itself did do some very interesting things. Among them, it, it settled the Western question, that after the treaty ending the revolution, you have the problem, the Treaty of Paris, you have the problem that things really aren't settled, that the British don't just go home till between their legs, but stay in a number of what were known as Western forts, impeding American progress throughout the continent. The West at this time was places like Ohio, my home state, Indiana, Michigan. And not only do the British keep their forts here, but they start fortifying the Indians. They give the Indians wherewithal, weaponry, um, and, and logistical support. And the Indians uh, engage in a series of raids on what's the West, on what's the West. And of course, this makes people not want to move there if they might be scalped. Uh, if they're going to have to fight a series of Indian wars, if there isn't stability, why would you go there? And so as a result, Western expansion does not proceed at the pace that it ought to with the British winking and nudging and staying there. And this was one of the key divide, dividing points. And so Washington and Hamilton send Jen, John Jay, then Supreme Court Chief Justice, off to London to negotiate the Jay Treaty, which on its surface um, relatively favors the British. The British get access to the full of the American market. The United States only gets partial access to the British market. But over this key Western point, the British agree to, to, to finally move their forts out so that there can be westward expansion. And this, of course, is very important to the United States. Uh, more importantly, that Hamilton saw that and worried about the fact that the greatest superpower of the age, Great Britain, uh, could very well have drifted into another war with the United States. And Hamilton, beyond being the organizing genius of the revolution and the organizing genius of Washington's administration, also was a war hero, a bona fide war hero. Again, for those of you who know the musical or have read the fantastic Chernow book, and again, I commend it to you. Um, Hamilton had led a night charge, which is almost unheard of in the revolution, on one of the redoubts um, in Yorktown in a vicious hand-to-hand -hand fighting. He himself impetuously demanded to lead it. He did, uh, emerged victorious, and this led to the surrender of Cornwallis, for which Hamilton's heroics were indirectly responsible. And he knows that the American cause barely won the revolution by the skin of their teeth. The last thing he wants is another war with Britain, because this could lead to calamity. 
having barely won their independence, they don't endanger it by these rubbing sores of trade disputes, of impressment of American sailors where the British would kidnap American sailors, force them into the Royal Navy. Uh, they don't want the fighting on the Western frontier to get out of hand. They don't want the United States to sleepwalk into a war, the Washington administration. And so they want to settle this because a war with the greatest superpower that they barely beaten to be free would lead to chaos when what the United States needed above all else was stability in order to thrive. And this leads to the third key point of the Jay Treaty. The United States and Hamilton and Washington were basically betting in the 1790s that in the contest between Britain and France, that Britain would emerge victorious and become the sole superpower, the dominant ordering power of its age. It would win its contest with revolutionary and then Napoleonic France and dominate uh, the world as it was known geostrategically at the time. And by placing this bet, Washington and Hamilton secured for the United States basically another 20 years of peace, a generation of peace from the 1790s to the War of 1812. And this period of peace is vital on the Western frontier that the United States can expand freely, that the United States can move ahead in peace and develop the North American continent, which is theirs by birthright. Now, this caused all kinds of difficulties, as I suggested. It leads to a party system. It, the treaty barely passes through the Senate 20 to 10, which is the minimum in the Constitution, a two-thirds majority, exactly to the number, 20 to 10. And it only passes because Washington puts down his bingo chip. The whole of Washington's credibility is on the line to get the treaty over the line, which it does by just one vote. It's that close because most Americans have an emotional tie to the French. After all, it was the French who helped the United States win its independence, both significantly by wherewithal, by money, by financing the war. That was the most important thing the Marquis de Lafayette, Washington's adopted son, the French aristocrat did, was go home and bang the drum for finance for the war. But secondarily at Yorktown, where without the French, the Comte de Gras winning the Battle of the, of the Capes around Ches the Chesapeake Bay, Cornwallis could have escaped from the trap at Yorktown and gone on his merry way. So the French contributed through naval forces, through military forces under the Comte de Rochambeau, uh, to actually winning the war. And more importantly, they financed the winning of the war. And an awful lot of Americans felt very fondly, rightfully so, and grateful to the French for what they'd done. But Hamilton and Washington were realists. It isn't about gratitude. It's about interests. And the American interests were not tied with the comrades-at-arms from the war, but with the old, hated enemy, the British. You can see emotionally why this is going to be a nightmare. At one point, when Hamilton tried to make a speech in New York in favor of the treaty, people actually threw stones at him. Things got so out of hand. When people tell you nowadays that our politics are vitriolic, if you look at American history, they've been vitriolic quite often. There's been an awful lot of hard feeling an awful lot of the time. And this was true from the beginning of the Republic on. They're throwing stones at Hamilton as he's trying to defend the treaty. But in the end, by a whisker, the treaty passes. But the treaty is so successful in that it does what it says it, it will do. The West is settled so the United States can advance throughout manifest destiny and dominate the North American continent, which is geostrategically vital. No wars with the Indians or at least manageable wars for the United States, not with the British behind the Indians. And so this is vital. The United States doesn't sleepwalk into war with Britain for another generation, so the fragile republic gets a chance for its roots to take hold. And then, yes, the United States was absolutely right to bank on Britain defeating Napoleon at Waterloo and serving 
as the great superpower of the next hundred years. That on all these fronts, the Jay Treaty worked. And in fact, it worked so well. I got to know Lady Thatcher, as many of you know, and it, the treaty worked so well. She said to me, you know, your policies are successful when after you leave, the next guy doesn't undo them. And in her case, she said to me, if the Thatcher revolution is not undone by Tony Blair, it proves we were successful. Of course, that happened. And she was because Blair did not undo the Thatcher revolution. On the other hand, for Washington, in the same way, Washington's Jay Treaty, when Thomas Jefferson finally succeeds to the presidency in 1800, after 12 years of Federalist domination, he does not undo the Jay Treaty. He quietly puts it in a drawer and lets it continue, meaning it did so well that even its opponents, when they come to power, don't undo it. That's a pretty good sign of success. And so the Jay Treaty passes and Washington sends the Republic on its way by the skin of his teeth, but he does this. Um... However, the acrimony and the vitriol around the treaty bother Washington. So when it comes time to draft his farewell address, when he's going to sum up his decades of support and giving everything for the American cause as he heads into retirement, who does he call on to help him draft this? Alexander Hamilton, of course. At this point, Washington isn't even after the Jay Treaty even speaking to Jefferson and Madison anymore, but he calls on McCartney to his Lenin one last time to help him craft the farewell address. And the treaty, or the farewell address is, and again, it's very easy to read. Uh, you can find it online. Please do read it as we go, these documents. Um, at least the key ones really make the story, you know, enhance it, I think. And what Washington says and lays out is the first great revolutionary innovation in American geostrategy. And it's realist to its core, as is Washington, Hamilton, and the Jay Treaty. And what it says is, look, in the long run, we're sitting here, this tiny series of colonies on the eastern seaboard, but we've just inherited the North American continent, that unless we screw things up massively, the Canadians aren't going to stop, it, stop us from dominating uh, North America. The Mexicans aren't going to stop us. The various Plains Indian tribes aren't going to be able to stop us, despite the fact that the Lakota leader... Um, Crazy Horse is probably the greatest cavalry officer um, in American history, uh, certainly one of them, and Sitting Bull was an organizer of genius, uh, Hunk Papa Sue, uh, but they're not going to be able to stop us. None of these groups can stop the inevitable domination of the Americans, of the United States, from dominating North America. And then the United States will find itself as a great power forever, forever. It will be one of a series of great global powers, but it will inherit the North American continent, because organically, there's just no way that the, the Canadians, the Mexicans, the Plains Indians tribes can stop us. So we will inherit the immense bounty of North America and dominate North America and be a great power forever in perpetuity if, if, if we avoid war with European powers. We can't become another Europe, uh, a landmass that has too many people fighting for too little land the result of which is perpetual war. So we have to keep the Europeans out of North America. If we keep them out of North America, like a ripe apple, it's going to fall directly into our basket and we will inherit and North America and be prosperous forever and be a great power forever if and only if we keep the Europeans from meddling in North America, which otherwise will be ours geostrategically rather simply. The easiest way to do this is make peace, even if it's humiliating, even if you hate the British and love the French, 
it's still in American interest because of this revolution in geostrategy to do this. So let's make peace with the British. Let's not have anybody immediately after the founding of our fragile republic mess around with North America and soon in a, in a generation or two or three, it will inevitably be ours. And of course, that's exactly what happened. For the next 120 years, this process plays out as the United States, through Manifest Destiny, moves across the West, dominates the whole of North America, the Industrial Revolution comes to America, and lo and behold, at the turn of the 20th century, the United States is exactly what Washington and Hamilton prophesied in the Farewell Address. It is one of a series of great global powers and always will be, and America has become rich beyond even Hamilton's wildest dreams. And this is all because they get the Jay Treaty right. And in the farewell address, they explain that alliances and treaties should only be formed into when they suit American interests. This is why this is such a great example of our first precept. Alliances should only be entered into when they advance specific American interests. In this case, the American interest is the geostrategic domination of North America and the vast prosperity that this will lead the American people to possess being a great power in perpetuity, all because of the Jay Treaty and this first great geostrategic innovation in American thinking, this first revolution. Okay, well, assuming that all makes sense, how do you look at events now? Rather than just signing things, as I said my Italian foreign minister friend urged me to do, let's even look at alliances that we've been in and established and have done some good through the years, the NATO alliance being the most, most obvious. The way that a realist would look at the NATO alliance is not that we throw the baby out with the bathwater immediately, but it's on what terms there's an alliance. And the current terms whereby my football team, as I told a leading German army commander, could defeat your army cannot continue. It's not an American interest if everyone in Europe is a security taker and not a security maker. Bottom line, they all need to spend 2% of GDP on defense. At the moment, the British meet this, the French are at about 1.9, but the Germans, the Italians, and the Spanish aren't even trying. Aren't even trying. And to free ride off the United States while you tell me what to do with my army is certainly not in my interest, nor is taking into the alliance this, this expansion. Taking Ukraine into the alliance is lunacy. It doesn't meet the terms. It is not a fully-fledged democracy. It's a corrupt oligarchy. It's not a primary capitalist state. It's mired in corruption. It serves no geostrategic function, meaning it's not in specific American interests to take them in. And this is how we look at it. Not what's best for NATO, but is NATO best for the United States? It's an entirely different way, a realist way to look at things. So the answer, as is so often the case for realists, is it depends. Do we support alliances? It depends. Do they serve specific American interests that last? NATO only does so if the great powers within it are serious about committing to defense spending, if the Europeans stop duplicating uh, their resources. The European economy is immensely rich. Um, in market size, it's smaller than America, but an immensely rich area. You can see that being here as opposed to the rest of the world. They may have no GDP growth. They may be sclerotic. They may be living off past glories and have no future, but they're still immensely wealthy. And as Adam Smith said, a state takes a lot of ruin. For a long time, this is going to be true. And if they're not, we can't be more serious about European defense than the Europeans are.
It's just a fact. NATO only makes sense, and I'm not for pulling the plug. I'm for them living up to the terms of NATO. They need to spend the 2% totemically. They need to stop free riding off the United States as they've done for generations. Let's remember that when NATO was set up, I have Gene Edwards' book on, Smith's book on Eisenhower, it's a very good biography. Ike says, look, I'm in favor of NATO. Um, we're going to have to, for about a generation, keep our troops here 10, 20 years. Europe will rebound economically, and then when it's on back on its feet, it can spend money on defense. We'll still have the Article 5 guarantee, but the Europeans will do the defending of Europe, and we can go to the rest of the world. Well, we're waiting for Godot here. Assuming Ike is right, say he would say around 1960, Europe's back on its feet, which it certainly was economically. It's now 20 it's in the 2020s. It's been 60 years, three generations, and we're waiting for Godot. It's time to stop begging the Europeans to do this and threaten them and say, you must do this. If you, We can't care more about NATO than you do. You must take this seriously now or we won't. Full stop. It only makes sense if it advances specific American interests and doesn't serve as free riding for Europeans off the United States. They must stop duplicating. They must have a common, I'm with the French here. They must have a common European strategy not to dupl duplicate wherewithal. Not every European country needs to build a frigate. They need to decide who specializes in what. But given their immense wealth, there's no reason that they cannot defend against Russia. Their economy, I think, is seven times the size of Russia, Europe together. It's time they put up or shut up. I've listened to excuses my entire adult life as to why they can't spend the money and the dirty secret is they don't want to spend the money on defense and they don't think we will ever threaten them or leave. So why should they do anything when they can sit and carpet us from the sidelines while living off us and retiring at the age of 14? They get to pay for their social, their ridiculously wasteful social benefits off of us defending them. Money's fungible. And so I'm sick of paying for Europeans to have their safety net. It's time they either took NATO seriously or we took NATO less seriously. That's what Washington would think. It's not that you pull out, but it's the terms upon which NATO exists. And it's time for the Europeans to pull their own weight or not to, but then bear the consequences. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this for our first look at the precepts that guide an American realist policy. And we start with one of my favorites. Washington and Hamilton's heroic defense of the Jay Treaty in 1794, the first geostrategic innovation, a revolutionary innovation in thinking. There have only been three, Washington, Hamilton, then John Quincy Adams, then Franklin Roosevelt. And this set us on a path to dominate North America and be a great power forever. And it really does come down to this realist thinking that we have to rediscover, which is at the American founding, is dominant at the American founding. And we must go back to our glorious relatives of the past to discover our future. Thank you very much. Please all do pre-order the book. Now's the time, the last best hope, a history of American realism. It can be ordered on Amazon. Spread the word far and wide. And next week, we'll look at chapter two. And that second innovation that of John Quincy Adams. Take care.